Well, good morning and welcome. Um, we are continuing in our series on Mark uh, called Who Is This Man? And we're in Mark 7 today. If you don't have your Bibles, the, everything will be up on the screen or you can get the Bible app and go to events and it will be right there. The, the subject of today is can I be good enough? Can I be good enough? Jesus has this interaction with these Pharisees, and that's really the question that they get after, and Jesus gives a better answer to the question than they didn't even ask. So uh, I'm excited to talk about it um, today. You've probably had a situation where you've asked, am I good enough for this situation? Um, I'm a graduate of Missouri State University, um, and before that, I was in St. Louis. I did two years at Community College at Jefferson College, go Vikings, and got my gen eds done, and then did uh, my last two years at Missouri State. But my first two years at Community College, it was a fun time to be in Community College. I met several friends and um, still talk to them to uh, to this day. And, And one of those guys I met in an English 101 class. And if you've never been in an English 101 class at a community college, it is an experience. Uh, because they are taking people that are done with high school and they are showing them how to read certain things, how to write certain things, and, and, and it's just this conglomerate of people. It was 2009, so the, the financial crisis of 2008 happened, so there were non-traditional older students in the class. There were people that had just graduated from high school. So it was just this mix of people, and it was really fun and kind of funny. Um, but this one guy who ended up uh, being really good friends, I ended up being really good friends with him. His name was Alex. But at the time, I didn't know Alex. He was just a guy in my class, and he was this tall, former wrestler, but he had this smile that he just, he wanted you to smile too. He was just kind of a goofball, kind of a funny guy, and the way that this class worked is you had to do your readings, um, you had to uh, turn in certain papers, um, but you also had to do class participation, so they would send you with this book, and you would read it, and then they would talk about the certain writing style or what was involved in that, in that book, and um, you'd talk about it in class and you get class participation points. So everybody had to find something they liked or disliked in the class and then bring it up in class. I thought that the way that they wrote this was interesting. I thought I really liked the way that this was you know, worded. They used very colorful language. And then you know, you'd, you'd kind of get your points. And you could check online if you had gotten your class participation points. But she never really, you know, if Jared talked, she'd write down, okay, Jared got his point. But she'd never say, that was good, you got your point. But my friend Alex was very like, tell me what I need to do to get the point and I'll do it. And he would come in some days having done the reading, some days having not done the reading, and he would come in and, you know, we'd be talking about something and he'd raise his hand and he would tell a story that had absolutely nothing to do with the reading and he would say, yeah, that reminds me of this time me and my brother got in a fight and we we wrestled and we did it and it was just like, where are you going with this? And he'd put his hand down and the teacher would go, So anyways, and would move on to what she was talking about, and Alex's hand would go back up, and she'd go, Alex, what do you need? Do I get my point? No, Alex, you don't don't get your point. That didn't have anything to do with the reading. Oh, man. Start looking at the reading to figure out what else he could say about it. And finally, this happened week after week after week, and, you know, he'd tell a story. She'd go, Alex, that didn't have anything to do with it. You're not going to get your point. Oh, man, you put his hand back down. And finally, he raises his hand a third time, and he said, what do I have to do to get the point for this class? And she had to take a step back and say, this is what the class is for, this is how you succeed in the class, and this is how I want you to answer these questions. And if we're honest, we probably have each had a moment, probably not, maybe potentially, with an English class, but we've all had a moment where we've said, what does it take to be good? 
not just at an English class, but in life, at relationships, but most importantly, with God. Do I have what it takes to be good? Am I good enough? Is my past so bad that I can't, I'm not worthy of having a relationship with God? Or maybe I have a second tier relationship with God because, man, I I messed up so big when I was in my 20s, when I was in high school, when I was first married. Maybe your your mistakes are so large that you'd say, "I, I don't know that I could get there. Or maybe you've developed an ideology where you would say, okay, I am going to try to compare myself to the people around me, and if I'm just better than them, if I'm just seated up a little bit higher, then maybe God will look at me and go, man, Jared's pretty good when you compare him to the people he hangs out with. So I like him. He's good enough. Maybe it's about just minimizing the bad things that you do. Maybe it's like, man, if I can just take the worst parts of me and say, how do I get rid of that? The addiction, the attitude, the anger problem. If I can just minimize those, maybe then God will say, you're good enough for me now. Maybe if you just do enough good, maybe if you just have the right attitude most of the time, maybe if the good outweighs the bad, Maybe if you're a provider, maybe if you do well for your family. A lot of this, I'm, I'm learning that like whatever you grew up with, you want to grow up and be better than. You didn't grow up with resources, so you, you provided resources for your family. You didn't have stability growing up, so you provide stability for your family. And that, those are good things. All the things that we're going to talk about today are good things, but do they make us good enough to have a relationship with God? Maybe we figure that if everybody in the room likes us, then God will like us too. If I get the consensus, if I get everybody's opinion around me and it's good, maybe God will like, man, he's convinced most of the people, maybe I should jump in that too. For some people, it's education. If I can get the master's degree, if I can get the doctorate degree, if I, can, if I can achieve a certain amount of success academically or personally, maybe then I'll, I'll arrive. It's about the letters that come before or after your name. Or maybe it's just the pursuit of knowledge. If I know enough, maybe then God will go, you, you, you've arrived, you get it, you're good. Maybe it's politically. Maybe we think that if we do enough good politically and we sway enough people and we convince them that this is the right way to live, then they'll jump on board, we'll gain God's favor, and we'll be good enough. If you're honest with yourself, you've probably had these conversations. And if you're honest with yourself, you've probably set a standard for yourself and you've probably failed it. Am I good enough? Can I be good enough? Well, in Mark, Jesus is doing a lot of miracles. Pastor Eddie talked last week about uh, just walking on water and the feeding of the 5,000. There's so much that happens there. And next week, there's more miracles. Good things are happening. But what you see here is that a group of people called the Pharisees come in and they have this interaction with Jesus. And the, the goal of the Pharisees was to trip Jesus up and convince everyone around him that, man, Jesus is a fraud. He's not who he said he is. He, he doesn't actually know to, to, to speak from God. Um, he, he doesn't listen and, and, and obey the scriptures. He does something else. So I actually preached a couple of months ago on a similar interaction with the Pharisees. Pastor gave me a, a, a Sunday, and it was a, the Pharisees had an issue with how Jesus treated the Sabbath. 
And Jesus ended up telling them, you don't understand the purpose of the Sabbath. They add layers and layers of rules so that they don't dare violate the Sabbath, but they miss the heart of God. And what we see right here is that something very similar happened. So I'm going to start reading in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, this is a little parenthesis, this is Mark adding context to people that weren't of the Hebrew or Jewish faith. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So, the issue here isn't even with Jesus. The issue here is with the followers of Jesus, with the disciples. They look at the disciples, and the disciples are eating without ritually, ceremonially washing their hands. See, this was one of the things that they added to the law of God. This wasn't about hygiene. This wasn't about they were grossed out because the, 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 the disciples went straight from, you know, they were fishermen, they were doing stuff, and then they started eating, and they were like, listen, you're going to get sick. That was not the Pharisees' concern. The Pharisees' concern is that they weren't following, not the rules of God, but they added r- rules on top of that. that. They were trying to make sure that, oh, we would never break the rules of God because we add these layers to the rules of God so that we would absolutely never touch the rules of God and and mess it up. And it comes from Leviticus 22. It comes from what what God asked the priests to do. What God would ask the priests to do was lead in the worship service and lead God's people to understand who he is. And part of that was doing a sacrifice. So they would lead in worship. They would sacrifice on behalf of the people. And then what God's word tells them to do in Leviticus 22 is to ceremonially wash their hands, to ritually wash their hands so that they were physically clean and they were, they were clean before God. And then there was another place where on the Day of Atonement where the, the, the chief priest would go into the Holy of Holies. But because this was like the inner sanctum, because this was like the closest place that you could get to God, they would take their time and they were very careful. They would essentially go into an apartment inside the tabernacle where no one else would be around them, no one else could get them dirty, and they would cleanse themselves. They would clean both their bodies and their minds. They would, they would talk to God. They would tell him, God, God, will you purify me? Will you make me clean? They would read God's word, and they would spend about a week doing that. And then to finish it, they would go in front of the people. All the people would come. They would set up a screen that they would not be seen, and what they would do is that they would wash themselves head to toe, scrub themselves head to toe, and then they would go and do a sacrifice on behalf of themselves and say, God, will you forgive me of my sins? They would return from the sacrifice, and they would wash themselves again, and behind the screen, head to toe, and then they would go on behalf of the priests. And then they would go on behalf of another group of people. And they did this five or six times. That they would do it in front of people, and the people would be grateful and would, would be there with them because they're doing it as their priest on behalf of them going to God. And, and the Pharisees took this order from God, this direction from God that was for the priests, for the chief priests, and they said, if it's good for them, surely it's good for us too. 
But the attitude started to shift. It may have been a decent intention, but the attitude started to shift from, man, we just want to honor God with this to like, no, we, we want to make sure we don't ever touch that bad part. We're, we're going to go above and beyond. We're going to do more and more what we could ever do to make sure that we please God. And they thought that maybe one day God would look at them and say, wow, you really, really care about the law of God because you're doing so much. And instead of the Pharisees, who would be, have been kind of like elders in the church, teaching God's word, they stopped teaching God's word and they started teaching their own laws. And this ritual of cleaning hands before you eat was one of them. Now Jesus kind of has a response to that in, in just a minute. This is Jesus' response in verse 6. He says to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Jesus gets right to it. Jesus does not mince any words. And he said to them, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines as doctrines, the commandments of men. What he's saying is they have replaced the word of God, what, what, in, what was intended to be God's word, and they've set that to the side, and they've started teaching their own laws, their own preferences, what they viewed, and what would now be called the Talmud. One of the interesting things about the Talmud is if you look in the Hebrew, one of the words as I was doing research on this, I don't know Hebrew, but one of the, the, the commentaries said that one of the words that helped describe the Talmud, which was all the laws, all the extra that they added, was a fence. The Hebrew word for fence is how they described it, or a wall. Now, if you build a wall or if you build a fence around something, it has two main purposes. You don't build a fence so it looks nice. You don't build a fence um, for, for much else. You build a fence to keep people in and to keep people out. And Jesus is explaining to them, you are so far from the heart of God, you miss this. See, one of the things that was clear, if you read through the Old Testament, the Old Testament is clear. There are, there are laws to adhere to, but God does these so that they will be attractive, so they, will, they will be people that will be alive and well and healthy, so that outsiders will see that the way of following God is good and worth it and right what they call Gentiles, people that are not Jews, and will say, man, you, you should come and lift the way that we do and honor our God because he's the one true God. But instead, that was kind of a fuzzy rule. How do you, get, how do you show Gentiles the love of God? What we can really grasp onto and make our laws are the ones that say, these are the rules, these are the laws, these are the things that we hold onto. We wash, we clean, we don't take steps on the Sabbath. We, and, and they held on to the hard rules, but the vision of the helping the outsider, they said, that's a little more confusing, we're gonna set that to the side. So in this, when it says that they go to the marketplace and they, they wash, and the reason that it said that they wash their cups and their dining couches and all these things, the reason is, is that they thought that maybe, potentially, a Gentile would have helped make that item. So instead of being close to a Gentile and thanking them for what they did, they would have taken that item home and washed it so that anything that would have touched the Gentile would have come off of it. One of the rules in the Talbot is that if you touch or get brushed by a Gentile, you have to go home, take off your clothes, wash them, and wash yourself. They have missed the heart of God. 
But what's interesting is they're not people that are like, listen, I don't care what God's word has to say. I'm going to go live life my own way. Jesus had more understanding for those people, but he gets so frustrated by this group of people that it says it honors him with his lips, but their actions, their heart, are far from God. They're far from God. All these extra biblical things that they add aren't showing people the heart of God. They're building a wall up. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to add something. I mean, if you, you gotta vote this way. If, you're gonna, if you love God, you gotta vote this way. If you love God, you've got to do this with your kids. And listen, what Jesus is saying here, don't confuse this. What Jesus is saying here, he's not saying, hey, everything that the Bible tells you to do, don't do it, doesn't matter. If you have the heart of God, you're good. What he's saying here is you can't get the order wrong and start telling people you have to do it this way or you don't know God. And having this heart that's hard and angry and doesn't understand the heart of God. Does the way that you live and the words that you use and the tone that you use and the attitude that you have, does it build a wall around who God is and who we should be inviting people into or does it open a door? Are we stretching and parsing out scripture to fit what we know, fit what we believe, fit what we already think because we want God's word to kind of fit in what we believe is best for us? My first point is this. Following Jesus means bending your life to God's word. Um, Jesus uses this as an example. He, he says that to them. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In verse 8, he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So you leave the, the, the word of God and you hold to the tradition of men. In verse 9, he says to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, and he's giving them an example here. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever I would have, what you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you would no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making, the void, making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down in many of these things you do. They had this tradition that was called Corbin, that if you said, okay, I'm going to submit half of my income or a certain portion of my wealth to God, whether that's upon your death or that's upon your life, you're going to say, I'm going to submit this to God in honor of who he is. They didn't have to do that. That's not what God's word asked them to do. Not a bad thing, right? Sounds like a very, very good thing. But they had this command that if your family comes to you and they're in a hard spot or, you know, parents get sick, need help, need care, need their children to be with them and to care for them, that the Bible calls us to go and care for them. That was one of the things that the early church in Rome and other places, other people said, women and children, old people, we're not going to care for them. They don't have value in our society. They're not strong in mind. They're not strong in spirit, so we don't care for them. But God's word says, no, we value every person because they bear the image of God. And here were the Pharisees going, yeah, I'd love to help you. I, believe me, I really, really would if I could but I have committed most of my wealth to God, so I can't. 
And what he's trying to show them is that they have taken God's word and they don't understand the heart of it. With their lips, they honor him, but with their hearts, they're far from God. They don't understand it. And while it might not be caring for your parents, there might be things that we look at in the Bible and we read, and maybe it just doesn't fit along with the American dream. Being a neighbor that witnesses to your neighbors is not part of the American dream. Giving up of your finances and your time to love your neighbor and so that other people know the name of God in ways that you might not ever physically see with your own eyes or your life by giving to missions, we miss that. Sometimes we'll give a little bit, but we don't want it to give like where it hurts us. We're called to be a light to the people around us. God calls his church a city on a hill that it should be a light to the people around it. And if I'm honest, I don't want to be annoying to the person that sat next to me at a coffee shop. That's my human tradition. That's my preference, because I care more about what they think about me than I do what the word of God says about me, if I'm honest. What are the human traditions that you hold on to? Our life should be shaped by God's word. The Bible says that his word is a lamp to our feet and light into our path. What does that mean? That means that God's word illuminates and helps us walk through this life. You know what that that verse insinuates? That the world is a dark place. It's a difficult place to live and have success. And not just by the world standards, but by God's standards. So God's word is a lamp to our feet, illuminating where we should go. It doesn't say that it's illuminating everything. It says it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Maybe it's just the next couple of things. But we need to let it change us and not try to fit, okay, these are the verses I like. These are the ones I'm going to hang on to. I'm going to forget the other ones that I don't like. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's a way of living that's only possible through the Holy Spirit. That's a way of living that we're only going to do if we know God and he's changed who we are. We're not supposed to be known by what we hate. We're not supposed to be known by our strong opinions. We're supposed to be known by, you've been changed so you love other Christians. Why? That's not normal because God has come into you and changed you. We're known by a love that's only possible through him. I don't want to get to the end of my life and get to heaven and have God have this same conversation with me. You said it with your lips you learned the right words to say, but you did it so that you thought you could gain my love instead of being close to me. My second point is this, following Jesus is to know and to love him. It's not just, listen, you better bend your will around what God's word says and figure it out or else. If that was the only thing we had to say today, that would be a sad and difficult place to end the message. I've got to go home and just figure out a way to do this. But God does this by setting up next to you, with you, by the side of you, walking with you every day. 
Knowing you, loving you, caring for you. The Bible, the thing that I can't get over is that you are fully known and fully loved by God. Those are the two things that I'm always afraid of. If you know me, you probably won't love me. And if you love me, you may not fully know me. But God knows you. He knows everything about you. And he still cares for you. Why did this hurt God so much? Why was Jesus so frustrated at this? That you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Jesus was frustrated because he looked at the Pharisees and where we could have just written them off and said, forget these people, these people are annoying. If you read through the Gospels, you're like, man, these Pharisees just don't get it. Instead, Jesus keeps reeling them back in, saying, guys, come on. I want to know you. I want to be with you. Far from the heart of God. And what Jesus does next is he starts to give perspective. And he doesn't just say, hey, listen, your rules, are, are, are they don't make sense. I didn't set them up. He doesn't diminish their rules, which I think is interesting. Because what Jesus doesn't do here is just throw everything out and say, listen, the, the cleansing, you, you didn't have it right. It was just for the priests in this situation. He could have done that and he would have been correct. But he zooms out and he gives them perspective so that they could understand the true problem. Not just intellectually where they're wrong, but where their hearts lay. So look at verses 14 through 15. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. The the call of Jesus is still to hear and understand. He never said, man, you guys just don't get it. He said, come in and listen. Don't get this wrong. And this is where he zooms out and gives them perspective. Verse 15, he says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. The third point today is following Jesus is to be changed from the inside out. What Jesus is saying here is Not, hey, if you can figure out how to make sure all of your influences around you are good and clean and right and nobody around you curses and nobody around you, you know, uses vile language. Like, if you can clean up your life enough, everything will be right. Jesus is like, listen, all food, it it comes into you and it comes back out. And he, he says that in just a minute. But he's like, it's not what goes into you that makes you uninhabitable by God. It is your heart. It's not the external, it's the internal. You will never be able to clean yourself up enough where everything will go right. You won't have enough days where you get things right in a row that you're like, man, I think, I think God's gonna be happy with me. It's not possible. It's an internal problem. It's not an external problem. It's our hearts. Listen to what the Bible has to say about our hearts. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said, or this is further on. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Proverbs 16, 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. I can justify my own actions, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Jeremiah 17, 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. In Psalm 44, 21, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. He knows the secrets of my heart. I grew up in church. I, I, I've shared this story before, but my dad grew up at the church that I grew up in. 
I, I wasn't Ron Bones' son. I was Ronnie Bones' son because everybody knew him as he, when he was a kid. So I learned really, really quick how to succeed in the economy of a church. I learned if you say the right things. I learned if you do the right things. I learned if you show up early and put some chairs away. I learned that if you helped out with Awanas on a Wednesday night. I learned that if you do all the right things, have a little scripture memorized, smiled at the right time, sang the right song, helped out where you needed to, most people would look at you and go, man, that Jerbone's a nice kid. I like him. He's good. And that was the economy I wanted to win in. I wanted people's affection. I wanted people's approval. I wanted people to like me. But I remember the first couple times that I felt like, I mean, if somebody finds out that I had a bad attitude, if somebody finds out who I really am, the sin that I'm capable of, they're not, they're not gonna value me anymore. And that opinion that I feel like I worked so hard for was a house of cards waiting to fall. These were the church people and Jesus was like, you don't get it. Look at what happens next in verse 17. And when, he, when he'd entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then you're, you are also without understanding. His disciples didn't get it. They were following him and they missed this. This is something that we have the capacity to all miss. Our hearts naturally go towards, hey, tell me the minimum of what I need to do to succeed here. Tell me the actions of what I need to do. And I'll just get by. How much do I have to give? How much do I have to volunteer to be part of the crew, to be part of the country club, to be part of the group? Just tell me what I need to do. And with a group, we think of it that way. But if I went home and told my wife, hey, can you give me a list of what it means to be your husband? And I'm just gonna start knocking that out. And I, I then became... Someone who, with my lips, I honored her. I did what she asked me to do, but she didn't have my heart. That's not affection. It's not any marriage that any person would want to be a part of. Jesus explains deeper. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters into the heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean, which is there's a lot there about the Hebrew law and what Jesus declares there is all foods being clean. But he said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. What is internal and comes out is what defiles us completely. What makes us uninhabitable, what makes us incapable of having a relationship with God. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, and listen to the way that this kind of line of thinking comes from sexual immorality. It's not just sexual acts that get people in trouble. It's the sexual deviancy that lives in their minds and their hearts before an outward act ever happens. Theft. You don't just see something and take it and then go, oh, I ended up with this and I didn't intend to. Now that does happen, but theft is normally, I see that, I want it, I don't want to pay for it, it would help me, I'm gonna get it. It starts in the mind, it starts in the heart. Murder. We classify this differently legally. There's an accidental killing of a person, there's a pre premeditated thought of killing a person. It starts in the heart. Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, 
envy, slander. When I want your opinion to be better of me, I want to be funnier, I want to put down the people next to me, and I will slander them so that you value me even more. It starts in my mind. Pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. See, in order to follow Jesus, we need to be changed from the inside out. Titus 3 writes it this way, but the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us. Listen to this phrase, not because of works done by us in righteousness. You cannot work and will your way to a good relationship with God. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured on us richly through our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not by our own righteous actions. The Bible says that our good deeds are like filthy rags to God. They're not good enough. Uh, I listened to a message this week where the, the, the preacher talked about Zechariah 3. And in Zechariah 3, it's kind of this, if you've never read it before, it, it's pretty interesting. Um, there's an angel who takes Haggai, and, and, and it's almost like a, um, a situation where he shows him through visions different things. Um, it's really interesting. But one of the things that he sees is Joshua, who was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. This was the day, the five washings, the week alone, all these different things. This is the day. And he says that he gets to the Holy of Holies, the innermost, where he would have been after this whole procedure. And what it says is, is that he has dirt and excrement on him. And I can only imagine seeing that going like, something went wrong. Something didn't go as it should. He, he is dirty. He's fallen down. He soiled himself. Like, this is not ideal. This is not going to go good before God. And the panic that has to set in, because this is a once a year, it's done ceremonially. Like, th this is an important time. He goes on behalf of the people. This is so important. But what he's showing him is this is the way that God views us, even at our best, even at our most clean, even when we've worked to, to get every germ and molecule off of us, we're unable because the problem is not externally, it's internally in our hearts and our minds, our souls. In Zechariah 3, 4, it says, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. We have a God who will make you new, who will clean you, who will make you whiter than you could ever been, cleaner than you could have ever been, presentable before God, where am I good enough? You can't be good enough on your own, but we can be good enough because of Jesus. And he gives us the relationship so that we don't have to work towards it, but we get to have relationship and be loved by God so we can go and we can live and honor God with our lives and not worry about, am I doing enough? No, I just, I, I want to lay my life down daily, moment by moment, saying, God, I want my life to honor you today because you have taken me and done more with me than I could have ever done on my own. So I want you, I want you. I can't do it by myself. And our hearts kind of bend and tend towards this line of thinking. Um, 
I started with a story from community college, and then I want to end with a story from community college. My last semester um, was an easy semester. I just had to get a couple of classes done. So I took a couple of online classes, and one of those um, was, I think it was like American history, like a certain time frame. And it was an online class at community college. It was easy. So you had five tests. You'd, you'd, you'd listen to all the things. You'd read a little, and you'd go in. You'd take the tests on a computer in the testing center. And I think I had only gotten 97s and 100%. So I'm like, this is easy. I've got got this in the bag. I get to the last week of school. It's finals week. All my classes are there. I schedule out a time to go into the testing center. I go into the testing center and I say, hey, I'm here to take government 103, whatever the class was. And she fumbles through a couple things and she goes, that class, the final is not open. Okay, when does it open? Because it was Monday. I gave myself plenty of time. And she goes, it closed Friday. The testing was Monday to Friday, the week before finals. I was like, that can't be right. And I go and look in my syllabus, and sure enough, I didn't put the date in right. I messed up. And I go online, and I look, and what I've gotten is I've got 97, 100. I'm killing it, crushing all these. And I go to the last one, and it says, Jared Bone, final test, certain percentage of my grade, zero out of 100. I'm not able to get any more extra credit. I'm not able to go take a quiz. I'm not able to do anything that can raise my grade up to where I want it to be. I go home, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. Here's all I was able to do. All I could do was call on the one that had the authority to put me in good standing and say, I've messed up, it's on me, and I need your help to make it right. And I'm at your mercy. It's Titus 3 by the works, not by, because of us, it's works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. He is the one with the authority to save. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We don't have what it takes to be good enough. But what's awesome about God is that he provides a hand out so that we can have a relationship with him. So I wanna ask you to bow your heads.